Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. If you would, this morning, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14. And we do confess that we need uh, the Lord this morning. Luke chapter 14. We're continuing our series in Luke and we've seen different pictures of of the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry. We've seen how he um, he is full of compassion and mercy. We have seen him serve and love. We have seen him teach. And I, I've appreciated so far um, just looking at Christ throughout his ministry. And we find ourselves this morning in Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. I'm going to read the text over us. I want you to engage it in your heart and in your mind as it's read. I will pray and then we will jump into the text. The Word of God says this. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first? And deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray one more time. God, we do need you. Uh, We're aware, Lord, that uh, apart from you, we can do nothing. You tell us that. Apart from your work, apart from your word, apart from your spirit, uh, Lord, we are just empty vessels that are able to accomplish nothing. But we do look to you. Lord, I look to you this morning in dependence. And we as a church pray, uh, Lord, with the psalmist pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. God, that you would remove distractions that you would clear our minds and our hearts to be able to engage and participate in the reception and the preaching of your word. And so we look to you this morning, God, to do this great work, the things that we are unable to do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I grew up playing sports. Uh, I've I've always loved sports and um, I played uh, football, baseball uh, in high school, but in junior high, I stopped uh, playing basketball because I stopped growing in the ninth grade. I was vertically challenged, and so I topped out at about 5'9 in the ninth grade, and so basketball was done. Uh, but every now and then, I had a coach at Magnolia Heights, my high school, who would, he would somehow coerce me into running track. Now, I really, really hated track. Uh, I would do the 100-meter dash. I ran the 100, I ran the 200, I ran the 400 relay. I could, I could handle it for about 12 to 15 seconds 
right? But after that, I was done. I think long distance running was created by the devil just to, to torture people. I mean, I hated, I hated long distance so much. And I really hated track, but I had this coach that would come up to me often and he wouldn't even ask. He'd be like, so you, you'll be, you're gonna be running this, this, and this. And so I just have to show up. And so one year I was a, I was a ninth grader and uh, he said, hey, you'll be running the 400 meter run. So it wasn't the relay, uh, it was a run. And I don't know if any of you have ever ran the 400 meter. It's one sprint all the way around the track. So it's not a 100 meter dash, it's not a 200 meter dash. It's, it's not really a short run, but it's one sprint around the track. So you can't, you know, it's hard to find a pace. You can't really set a pace because you're trying as, as hard as you can go for as long as you can go for one time around the track. And I made the mistake before this run of drinking a Coke and, uh, and eating a few packets of Reese's peanut butter cups. And so it formed this combustion in my stomach. It was just a bad idea. So the illustration is, is that before I ran this race, I wish I would have known what it was going to be like. It was my first time running it. I didn't know what all it entailed. I thought, man, I can do, I can do at least just one time around full speed and it won't be a big deal. But that's, that's not how it went, okay? And so I, was, I ran as hard as I could one time around, dead last. And I remember throwing up that Coke and that Reese's combustion that had the, those peanut butter cups that had just settled in my stomach. And so the illustration is that, is that I wish I would have known beforehand what all it was going to take to finish uh, this race. I wish I would have known what, what all I would have had to, to put out. The energy, the exhaustion, the embarrassment it cost me from puking my guts up afterwards. But I had to learn that the hard way. Well, Jesus this morning in our text is calling anyone and everyone who would consider to be his follower to count the cost. Last week's text, we saw that Jesus called people in this beautiful illustration of a banquet, that he calls people to come in, the crippled, the lame. That pictures us as he's calling us to himself. But the very next text talks about the terms that come along with that call. And so we're going to look at the text this morning, a very heavy, a very weighty, a very serious text, a very, some very serious sayings of Christ. And let's jump in. Verse 25 says this, it says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and began to speak or turn to them and said, and so first we're going to see the first demand that Jesus has on anyone who would desire to follow Christ or anyone who has begun following Christ is that he demands self-examination. That it is easy, and it was easy for people in the time of Jesus to hide in the crowd. Unlike contemporary methods of outreach and evangelism in the church, Jesus was not at all concerned with great numbers. He wasn't trying to get people to pray a prayer or build a massive gathering. He wasn't about bragging about baptism numbers or stats. Is that if you were to evaluate the ministry of Jesus based on current trends in church evangelism, he would have seemed like a failure with 12 men for three years, one of them who fell away. Success to Jesus in his ministry was not defined by numbers. It was not defined by numbers. He did not look at the massive number of people that were following him and immediately just think success. That he cared more about the quality of the individual who was following him rather than the quantity of individuals that were following him. And really, in a few times in the Lord's ministry, we see that he actually does the opposite of trying to get a massive gathering, is that, is that he takes intentional time to separate the would-be followers from the true followers. 
Not too long ago in Luke chapter 11, Brother David preached this passage. Luke eleven twenty nine. 29, it says, the text says, when the crowds were increasing, Jesus turned and began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Surely this is the time where he, he needs to lighten down the message, right? We've got all these people. You can think about the mindset of the disciples, Lord, just, just tone it down a bit. We, I mean, we've got, we've got big numbers here. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't evaluate how he could water down the message to, to, to re- retain a massive following. In Matthew chapter 10, before Jesus sends out the 12, he's up front with his disciples about what it's going to cost them. He says, take no bag or money. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep into Wolves, you will be flogged and hated by all for my name's sake. And then he gives this illustration that a servant is not above his master. And so if they've persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. And so essentially, we're looking at the fact that there is no fine print in the contractual obligations to follow Jesus, that he is very clear what it means to be his disciple is that he turns to the masses and he knows two things. He knows it's possible that these people might be confused about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, follower of himself. But he also knew that some might be deceived in thinking that they were true followers of Jesus. So he doesn't assume that because you were in a larger crowd of people that everybody was a true follower. In Jesus's day, it was possible for people to identify with Christ culturally or socially, just being a part of the crowd of people that were following him, to hear his voice, to see his miracles done, to reap benefits from those miracles to be in close proximity to the Son of God, but not be a true follower or disciple. The same is true in our day, that it is possible for you to identify as a Christian or with Jesus, those are synonymous. Disciple and Christian are the same term. It is, it is possible for you to identify with Jesus socially or culturally, to hear his teachings, to know some biblical truth, to even gather with his people on a semi-consistent basis, but not really be his disciple. And so Jesus's fear is that people are going to follow him without an appropriate, accurate understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is an extremely popular notion in our culture that you can be a follower of Jesus, you can be saved and not follow him on the road that he followed. Is that you can enjoy the benefits of heaven and having your sins forgiven without following Jesus in obedience through suffering and hardship and self-denial the whole way to heaven. And that is an unbiblical idea. And so I want you to examine your heart this morning and evaluate your life. What is your understanding of what it means to be a Christian? What is your understanding of what it means to walk with God? And does it line up with the obligations, the expectations, the requirements that Jesus lays out in this text? Or have you adopted a much easier, Western, constructed, bill of goods that does not line up with what Jesus says it means. I, won't, I don't want you this morning to examine a time in the past in your life. I don't want you to examine a time, just a time when you made a decision or you said a prayer or you came down an aisle. The expectations that Jesus is calling these people to examine are in the day-to-day decisions of their life. I want you to examine your life, your day-to-day decisions. Not only does Jesus call them and demand that they examine themselves, he demands for all of our allegiance and all of our affections. 
all of our allegiance and all of our affections. And so he turns to the crowd. He doesn't assume that everybody is a true follower of his. And he says, this is, let me just make clear for everybody. If you're going to follow me, if you're, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what's required. And I don't want us this morning to get these two things mixed up, which is salvation and discipleship. Okay, what I mean by that is that in this text, there's not a full understanding of what the gospel is. Is that the gospel is a series of truths about the person and work of Jesus that we trust in, right? We, that we, we turn from our sin, we trust in the work of Christ and God justifies us before himself, is that we are made righteous not by our own works. So the list of obligations that the Lord gives are not things that we do in order to earn favor with God. It's expectations for the believer. So Jesus, Jesus knows that there are some people who think that they're saved, that they're not, and some who are considering the call. He says, listen, if you're going to have salvation if you're going to be a follower of me, this is what comes along with those blessings. And the first one is all of your allegiance and all of your affection. Verse 26 says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I remember I read this text to some students at LifePoint Tunica when I was serving there. And they literally thought it was a misprint. <laughs> they thought, whoa, hold on. He was like, this, mine says, mine says hate right here. Like, what, what is that about? And so it does need a little expectation because the question arises, what is he saying here? Is he calling us children to disobey the fourth commandment? Is he contradicting what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to love all, that we're to even love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Well, I think we get a better understanding of that in Matthew chapter 10, which is Matthew's account of this passage. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says, anyone who loves his father more than me is not worthy of me. And so it's really a term, it's a term of, of comparison, is that Jesus is saying in this text that you are to love me in such a way that all the other relationships in your life look like hate. The Bible does this in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, where Leah's being hated is explained by Rachel's being Rachel being loved more than Leah. And so at the what Jesus is saying and what he's getting to the heart of these people is that even in a culture today where the family is eroding, most of the time at the heart of family ties, at the heart of family ties are our deepest allegiances and loves. Our deepest allegiances and commitments and love is tied into our, our closest earthly relationships. And Jesus is pointing out that our highest affection, who we love and allegiances, who we are committed to, have to be reprioritized from our family or from our friends and placed under his lordship. In the first century, a Jewish person who made a public proclamation to follow Christ would almost immediately be abandoned or ridiculed or persecuted by his or her family. We see this today in Muslim countries or in Eastern countries where when they profess the name of Christ, what does their family do for them? They throw them a funeral in Muslim cultures where there's closed countries. They, they disavow, right? If, if, if you're going to set your allegiance away from your family and place it under the lordship of Christ, they just assume you're not a part of the family or dead. In other words, there could be no casual commitments or devotion to Jesus in the first century. That a decision for Christ marked a person and automatically came with a cost. The modern Western phenomenon where a decision for Christ is popular was foreign to the first century culture. It was a hostile decision to demote your family and place all of your affection and all of your commitment to Jesus. That was something that only God demanded of people, but that's who Jesus was and that's what he Demanded, And we need to understand too that relationships are not a bad thing. 
Jesus Jesus created us for relationships. He is a relational God. We bear his image in that way, but it, it is a decision, listen, to reject any competition for our allegiance, no matter who it comes from, is that followers of Jesus live to please Jesus. That our highest goal as Christians is to hear at the end of our life or when Christ comes back, well done, my good and faithful servant by our Lord. Followers must obey Jesus's commands when they come into conflict with family commands or family requirements or friend requirements. Well, the crazy thing is that the true follower of Jesus benefits his or her family. Is that the call that Jesus has in relationship to our family is to submit to the authorities that he's given and to love and to self-sacrifice for their good. But there will be times, even in Western American culture, where it will be costly to either do what your family says, what your spouse says, what your friends say or want you to do, or do what Jesus has called you to do. Is that No one can be placed in front of Christ, no matter the relationship. It has cost me in family and friend relationships to be obedient to Jesus. But they are so minuscule in comparison to the sufferings across the world that I didn't even feel the need this morning to mention them. That I've been made fun of or called a holy roller or called, you know, better, you know, holier than thou. Uh, But Jesus is wanting these men or women who are considering following him to know that this comes with the territory that all of your love and all of your commitment must be given to me above and beyond what your family would desire of you, what your friends would desire of you. And then he goes on and, and he really attacks the person that we love the most in the last part of that verse. He says, yes, even his own life. The most loved person in your life is you, is me. The most loved person in my life is me. The sinful nature does that to us, where we come out of the womb loving ourselves, doing what we want to do, living my life. But for the Christian, it's about setting aside selfish desires and preferences for our life and to say and live the proclamation, not my will be done, but but Lord Jesus, your will be done. The way of Christ is different, is that you are to love him more than you, is that you are to be a servant to him. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you were bought with a price, that you are not your own, that you are to do what honors Christ, what pleases Christ, what Christ demands. It is the course that Christ sets for your life. Former relationships were the top priority but they must be subjected under the lordship of Jesus. So not only our commitment, but, but think about our loves, our affections. Jesus says our love and affection for him is displayed in how we what? If you love me, you will keep my commands. Is that you will obey me. That if you love me more than anyone, any other relationship in the, on this earth, you will obey me. He's calling for complete obedience. And the measure, listen to me, because I hear this all the time, well, I love the Lord. Well, I love, I love Jesus. But the measure of your love and affection for Christ is seen in the day-to-day priority of obedience to him over and above all other relationships and all other personal desires. If he's called you to church membership, you submit to church membership. If he's called you to give, you freely give of your money. If he's called you to go, you go. It's that Christ sets the priority and the direction for your life over and above any earthly relationship. Christ is to be loved more than anyone, followed and feared more than anyone, obeyed more than anyone. Not only that, but Jesus demands self-abandonment. So he works, he begins, he says, you must, yes, hate even your own life. But look, he segues into verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus demands self-abandonment. That he calls you to abandon yourself. It essentially means is that we must die to ourselves and be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And this speaks directly into 
our individualistic culture is that we can't help it, partly because we're all products of the culture that we grow up in. Our culture in America is, it is very individualistic. That it's the law of the land across our land is that I want to do what I want to do. That self-government, that, that, that self-autonomy, personal autonomy, that I am in control of my life is the law of the land. Individual freedom is God, is that you cannot tell me how to live my life. And Jesus cuts straight to the heart of that, and he says, you no longer are your own. That you're no longer, you no longer have the right to set the course for your life. Not only does that mindset, listen to me, dominate the world around us, that it has crept into the church that it has seeped into the gospel message. And so now there is a separate false gospel that we would call the prosperity gospel that tells you you can have Jesus, you can have all the blessings, you can have heaven, you can have all the joy and fulfillment, and you can also have everything that you want as well. Is that you can have your selfish desires, you can live your life your way is that God is actually, Jesus actually becomes a servant to your selfish life. And so whatever you want, you can have that plus the benefits of Jesus. It's about your best life now, that God wants that for you. God wants you to be happy and he does want you to be happy, but the way that he defines happiness, that you've got the power in you, that it's centered on self. And that's, that's a false Christianity. When I got married, I, I mean, I don't have, a lot of style now, but like I really didn't have any style when I got married. And I learned about accessorizing when I got married. You know, I mean, Hillary's helped me out with that. That don't go with that. Those don't go with that. I'm just like, okay, uh, you know, I'm working on it, you know, color coordinating, accessorizing here. But there is an accessory gospel in our culture that, that says that you can have, well, I, I, kinda, I want Jesus as Savior, but complete submission to his Lordship I, that, that's, not a part, that's not a part of what I want. So we take bits and pieces. I want enough of Jesus to get to heaven, but when it comes to the day-to-day surrender of my rights under the obedience of Christ, well, I'm, I'm not for that. I don't need all that. But Christ calls us here to bear our own cross, is that we must abandon ourselves, that we must abandon our sin. Anything and everything that dishonors Jesus and pursue anything and everything that is pleasing to Jesus. Church, there is no such thing as having the Savior while cherishing and holding on to your sin. That it is a staple mark in the life of the believer that he says God's way over my way, that obedience to Jesus takes the highest priority over my selfish desires. We are in this Burger King culture, right? Have it, I can have it my way. And that is not how Jesus describes what it means to be a Christian or a follower of him. There is no situation where we rule some of our lives and Jesus might get Sunday or Wednesday, That's a false understanding of what it means to be a disciple. But bearing your own cross is not only dying to yourself, but it's also a willingness to suffer. When Jesus says you must bear your own cross, a first century Jew would have known exactly the reference. That it would have been to a a torture of instrument or instrument of torture that the Romans used to crucify people. Uh, And Jesus at this point has not even told them that he's going to be crucified. But he says you you must carry your cross. So they would have understood what that meant bearing your own cross. It's a call to self-denial, not self-fulfillment. It's a call to self-sacrifice, not service. And it's a willingness to endure suffering, persecution, ridicule, loss of popularity, all for the sake of Christ. And this is what he's calling them to. And we don't have much persecution in America, right? We don't have, very rarely do we hear of family situations where you confess Christ and they boot you out or they have a funeral for you. But persecution will come if you live like a disciple of Jesus, not just in word, not just in 
you know, on Sundays or Wednesdays, but when your day-to-day decisions begin to change under the Lordship of Christ, when you really begin saying, listen, I'm not gonna go watch that. I'm not gonna live like that. We're gonna spend our money how Christ wants us to spend our money because it's really his money. When you get down into the nitty gritty of obedience, that's when persecution comes. So there's actually a type of Christianity that exists where you can say I'm a Christian in word only and not experience any type of persecution from the world because it doesn't look any different than the world looks. But Jesus is calling them to absolute obedience to him. And then he says, he gives us two illustrations. He demands that we count the cost. The two illustrations are one of a builder and one of a king. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower? The Greek tells us that this is gonna be a a majestic tower. It's not like a little hut with some straw on the top. He says, which of you desiring to build a tower that it is this massive weighty thing that is before us that we have got to construct and build? It would have been ornate. It would have been specific and detailed. He says, which of you desiring to build this tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And if you don't, he says... If you haven't counted the cost and you cannot complete the tower, what happens? You're ridiculed and made fun of. He says that people begin to mock you. And the, and the, the construct in the Greek, I mean, it essentially says that you're called foolish. That that type of testimony is one of a fool. And then he says a king. He says a king goes into war. He's going to encounter another king in war who's bigger than he is. He's a formidable opponent, opponent and he says, which, which king does not first sit down and say, listen, we're outnumbered here. So, so do, do we have enough for what it's gonna take to overcome this enemy? And if not, what, what will be the result? It's embarrassment. It's loss of victory. Is that you have to go out and ask for a, you know, a, a treaty of peace. And Jesus is telling the people who who want to follow him, listen to me, if you're going to follow me, not only must you abandon all self-interest, not only must I become the highest authority and priority in your day-to-day decisions, but there's going to be work and there's going to be war. There's going to be work and there's going to be War. And we know that we are servants of the master builder in the illustration of the building is that Christ is building something. In Matthew 16, he says, I, am build, I will build my church. And Christ is building his church. And we are servants in this building process, brick by brick. And we are soldiers in the Lord's army. Though he has already won the victory, is that we are called to battle against The kingdom of darkness, Ephesians chapter six, we're called to battle against the world system that is set against Christ and we're called to battle against my worst enemy and that is the sin that remains in me, that we're called to war. We're called to war. And Jesus is saying that he's not looking for casual workers, is that he's not looking for workers who are going to slack on the job and are fickle in their commitment. Is that when you enlist in the job and working for Christ and following him in discipleship is that you are always on the clock. And lackadaisical service in the kingdom of God is not welcome and is not expected in the eyes of God. Of Christ. Second Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. J- Jesus says in John chapter nine, verse four, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day because night is coming. We know that there is an end of our work. Time has been given us to us, precious time to, to work and to serve in the Lord's kingdom. That we are to be busy about God's work, building up and edifying and serving one another 
The word edify comes from the the word edifice, which is just another word for building. And so the picture is that as servants of Christ, we are setting aside our selfish preferences and serving the needs of one another, building up the body of Christ and doing the Lord's work. Is that the main focus of your life and service is to other people for the glory and honor of Jesus. But also Jesus is not looking for lukewarm soldiers whose commitment level isn't at the absolute highest degree, is that Jesus is not looking for toy soldiers who will flinch and cower at the sight of conflict. He needs men and women who will give all for his cause. He needs soldiers who are willing to sacrifice their life for the sake of his cause, which is his glory, who will lay down preferences, who will lay down sin, who will lay down comfort, who will lay down ease, who will lay down retirement, who will lay down popularity, all for the cause of Christ. And picture the illustration of war. And some of the vets in here I've been been in, I've been in war. And I consider it an honor, not, I mean, a, a privilege of not having to experience all that some of you have experienced. But just picture, the, picture distraction in war. That the war is raging, bullets are flying, men and women are falling, people are perishing, and we are looking at our phones. Or we are on the golf course. Or we are on our fifth vacation this year. Or we have watched eight hours of TV today. I mean, think of the illustration in war. If, if what's at stake, if you're going to be distracted in your service. Paul calls Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits Why? Since it is the soldier's aim to please the one who has enlisted him. And there is a seriousness in a war that is going on. Is that people are perishing into eternity. Is that darts and bullets of the enemy are flying. Is that battles are being lost. That families are being destroyed Dysfunction abounds in the city of Memphis from fatherlessness. I mean, there's fallout all across our land from sin, Satan, and the world. And we are called to serve in the Lord's army and to not get distracted. And we will be held accountable for how we lived so comfortably and lavishly in the midst of a war that is raging. Ultimately, Christ has won. Right? So that frees us up to serve in the battle. But Jesus is painting a picture. Let's bring it back. That if you're going to follow me, it's it's costly. That it's costly. That he doesn't want them to be surprised that there's no bait and switch. Right? In the method of Christ, he's laying it out before them. Listen, if you're going to be my follower, it's going to cost you. It may cost you relationships. It's going to cost you your selfish desires that you would want for your life. It's going to cost you sin that a part of you really enjoys, that you have to lay it aside and set it aside in obedience to me. And let's skip to verse 34 real quick. Look in your text. Failing to count the cost, count the cost is costly. That if you do not count the costs, that the repercussions are serious. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So sometimes the salt would be mixed with gypsum. It would kind of lose its taste. But salt, I mean, if salt doesn't have its taste, its flavor, its tang, then it kind of loses the purpose for which it's intended. And he says that in verse 35, it's no use for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. So he's saying that, Fickle, half-hearted, confessing Christians in word only who are not ready to to be obedient, to set aside uh, life and liberty for the cause of Christ has no value. And he says it will be thrown away. That's a picture of judgment. That it became, that people who confess Christ, 
who do not follow him in obedience, who are not serving him sacrificially, who live as the world lives. He says, are not serving their intended purpose as a follower of Jesus. But I think as we wrap up the, the sermon, that the last part in verse 33 kind of helps us with, with this text. It says that essentially the last point is that Jesus demands the abandonment of all, that he really does call you to abandon all. He says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And the principle in that verse is, is that we are to value Jesus above all. I mean, the text gives us, it's all-encompassing. Relationships, self-interest, comfort, ease, your way. And then he, he includes possessions. They're included here. Material possessions, all for the cause of Christ. He makes clear that you must abandon your allegiance to anyone. And now he says to anything. It's all-encompassing. There can be nothing in your possession that you love more than Jesus. And hear me, it's not wrong to have possessions. And we're gonna to get to the heart of the text as I close it. It's not wrong to have possessions. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to have relationships where you care what they think. But essentially, Jesus is getting to the heart. He does that often, right? Like a, like a well-educated, experienced cardiologist, he goes for the heart, he goes for the heart. He's he essentially saying, if those things have such a grip on you, they cannot have such a grip on you to where you are serving them rather than serving me or loving them rather than loving me. In Matthew chapter five, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, which sin is the essence of preferring anything over Christ, he says, cut it and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members physically than that your whole body go into hell that your whole body go into hell. I want you to see that you were created to be happy. You were created to enjoy. You were created to find pleasure in God, but sin distorts that. It's that because of sin, we look for joy, happiness, fulfillment. We, we obey, we fear things rather than Christ. And the result of that is sorrow, Psalm 16, 4 says. You think that things or relationships are gonna make us happy. We just think that way, but they're, they're wrong. Consider the rich young ruler. Jesus said to him, right? He said, this guy comes to Jesus. He's got wealth, he's got influence. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the commandments. And he's, he's messing with this guy because he's gonna get to his heart. He said, well, I've done all those things. I've kept the law. And Jesus says, well, you need to sell all of your possessions and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And what was his response? He walked away, sad, sorrowful. Why? Because he had many possessions. Jesus was getting to his heart because the thing that gripped this man was his possessions, is that he loved and admired and had allegiance to the satisfaction that came from loving his possessions. But consider Moses. Hebrews eleven twenty six 26 says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater, greater than the wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Consider Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a what? Well, I'm not gonna actually sing the song. He was a tax collector, right? He had lots of money. He had been manipulating people out of money his entire life. And he wants to see Christ. Christ draws him in. Salvation comes to his house. And how does he respond with his money? He gives it away. He pays fourfold. And why is that? It's because Zacchaeus and Moses and Paul in Philippians chapter three had, had come to the realization through the power of God that Christ was more treasurable and valuable than anything or anyone that the world had to offer. That obedience to Christ and love for Christ supersedes any, approve, any approval of anybody from the world, anything that the world has to offer, any material possessions. Paul says in Philippians 3 that I counted 
as loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. And then verse eight drives home the point in the heart of following Jesus. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So everything that he considered valuable when he came to know Christ, he considered it as a loss because of who Jesus is. Is that he counted those things rubbish, he says in verse nine, in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul was willing to give up popularity, relationships, positions of power, all because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And that is really the call to discipleship. It's a call to love and obey and surrender to Christ above all. But the good thing is the one who is giving the call gives weight and grounds the call. That that Jesus gives us this call, that you are to abandon all for me. And ultimately, the gain in giving up everything in obedience to Christ is Christ himself. That he must be enough and he is enough. And the true disciple of Jesus values Jesus and obedience to Jesus over everything, over everything. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And so this man walks by this field and sees the treasure. You know what he does? He goes and sells everything that he has. His friends probably thought, man, what are you doing? You're buying this field. You probably can't even till it up like to to bear any fruit or to make a living. It's probably a small plot of property, but what he knew that they did not know was the treasure that was hidden, that he gave up everything. And Jesus is that treasure. That Jesus is valuable, that Jesus is the sinless one who died a sinner's death for sinners. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In him, the fullness of deity dwells. He is the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word. He is the creator of the world that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God and he is fully man, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, that he is the humble one who stepped out of the glories in heaven and and wrapped himself in human flesh that though he was in the form of God, considered equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. We're talking about Jesus, that he is the judge of all the earth. All his judgments are true. He is literally the center of the universe. He will be the center of our minds, attention, and our hearts, affection for all of eternity. He is the one who our hearts were created to love and to rest in and to cherish. It is Jesus. And so discipleship, the call to discipleship is a call to, to comprehend by the Spirit of God the surpassing worth of Jesus above everything. Above everything, that is discipleship. That is what it means to follow Jesus. And so your life, if somebody were to follow you around and examine your life, what would they be able to say that you love? Who would they be able to say, well, it seems like they love fill in the blank above Christ. Well, it seems like that Jesus doesn't have all of of their allegiance. It seems like, through what they buy, how they spend their time, what they do, that Christ does not have the highest priority in their home. So think about some application questions. You can see them on your outline as we close. And I want us to think through these. Am I avoiding more intimate settings of discipleship and just hiding on Sunday? That it's easy to hide in the crowd. It's easy to hide in the crowd. It's easy to have a commitment for four hours out of seven days on Sunday morning. Christ is calling us to more. In my day-to-day life, day-to-day life, not just here, in your day-to-day life, do I demonstrate the fruits of a disciple of Jesus? Are these things true of you? Not perfectly, Goodness gracious, not perfectly, but consistently. That you're fighting and warring against your sin. That you're 
with all the power that he works within you, you're trying to pursue complete obedience to him in every single area of life? Is there a relationship that I have made a priority over Jesus? Even a good relationship. Even the relationship to your kids or your grandkids or to your husband or to your wife. Am I prioritizing that relationship over Christ? Is there anything that has a greater allegiance than Jesus in my mind, effort, and love? Have I considered what is expected of me in following Christ? This week was just a sobering, humbling, healthy reminder of what I'm called to when I follow Jesus. His grace is sufficient in our weakness. Have I let the word of God or how it's always been determine what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple? That is extremely important. That you ask yourself, does my day-to-day life as a Christian, does it line up with what I've maybe always known as what it means to be a Christian or does it line up with the terms and how Jesus and the word of God defines what it means to be a Christian? Is there anything I'm unwilling to let go of to be obedient to Christ? Is there anything that you're unwilling to unclench in following Jesus? What in my life, upon examination of money and time, has a greater priority than Jesus and his kingdom? Time and money or things that we're called to steward. They they tell, they're like thermostats. They tell us the temperature. They give us an indication of what we really love. And so upon examination of those things, what has the highest priority in your life? And then lastly, and this just summarizes all of it, who or what has my heart? Is it Christ? Is it Christ above all? Is it obedience to Christ above anyone? Is it, is it Christ above my earthly possessions? Is it Christ above how I spend my time? And let's answer that call this morning. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.